Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. To be special forces? Yes, sir. Why do you want to join the CIA? I'd like to help my country make a difference in the world. The average test time is five hours. I'm done, sir. It's been 40 minutes. 38 minutes? What should I do now? Whatever you want. The deputy director of the NSA offered me a new position. Can you tell me anything about it? <laughs> you know I can't. Find the terrorist in the internet haystack. 
Welcome, everyone, to the Next Reels Film Board on Rashpixel.fm. Each month, we sequester a gang of thugs to spoil a movie that just opened in theaters, even when the film depicts a widely known real-life event like tonight's film, Snowden. And an early spoiler alert here is that the movie is not just about the news story you likely heard back in 08, but a bit more about the controversial buzz you may or may not have heard leading up to its release this week, including a live Fathom event that some of us attended and at least one of us even sat through. And we will definitely get into that. I am JJ, and I don't believe in privacy, so I want you to meet my friends. The patient one, Steve Sarmento. Hello, this is film board member X. I am participating in this recording. However, I would like to remain anonymous, so I have changed my voice. <laughs> I have no idea what to say to that, but I love it. Uh, how about my partner in transparency, Pete Wright? I, I thought I was the Edward Snowden <laughs> robot. Learn more about the film board and this show at thenextreel.com. <laughs> Subscribe to the show through your favorite podcast app vehicle uh, or join us on YouTube or and follow us on Twitter and Facebook and check out our experimental baloney on Snapchat and Instagram as we work to get through all of the automatic security settings there. <laughs> uh, and uh, the reason I tell you all that is because this movie didn't scare me away from social media, but I'm not sure it should have because... I'm not sure if that was the point. Um, uh, although now I know that Edward Snowden speaks very slowly with thoughtful, pregnant pauses and is a master of a knowing wry smile. So I want to hear everyone's initial impressions. Uh, what did you all get from uh, Eddie and Ollie? Pete? Oh, surprise, surprise. It was an Oliver Stone film. <laughs> Dear yes. me, uh, this this was a movie made by a guy desperate to understand complex technical issues deeply, while at the same time being horrifically afraid of them. Uh, it was it was Oliver Stone heavy-handed in its approach, and it, it moved so quickly over the technology stuff that if you didn't keep a close eye, you might just have missed it in the Rubik's cube. But still, the Big Short. And War Dogs, and now Snowden, these are all films in which the filmmakers attempt to explain complex issues as clearly as they can, making this emotional connection with us in hopes that we might take interest before our collective interest wanes. Uh, Whether they nail it as a film, uh, I don't care. These stories (laughs) are important. So as a film, the sum of of, of its parts for me was it was rushed in some places downright silly, but I was deeply connected with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Snowden, and that made up for a lot. That's great. I, well, then I definitely want to get into the rest of that with you. I'm kind of nervous to go back to um, The Voice, but I want to talk to you, Steve, because I know you took in the whole Q&A. What were your thoughts about it? I, I really enjoyed this <laughs> film. Dear God, uh, he's back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I had a great time with this. How, uh, I think the Fathom event... Um, did add some context to it, and I th- anyone that has uh, has seen Snowden or is interested in seeing it, I think the Citizen Four documentary uh, is a good complement to this film. the The Q and A did tie in some of Snowden's perspective and some things he had to say about issues related to the film and privacy that I think gave us a little bit deeper understanding in the context of some of the moments in the film. And also Oliver Stone explained some really interesting connections that he had uh, with this film and some of his other films. He, he talked particularly about the film Born on the Fourth of July. 
and uh, you know Snowden and uh, Ron Kovac of you know two men that were patriots that then became disillusioned by what they learned about their country and and basically stood their ground and made a stance for what they believe in and w- how they believe their country can be great and how it has gone astray, which I found a, a really interesting connection that I hadn't really thought about uh, as I was processing the Snowden film. So I think there's there's some interesting connections to be made between those two films. Personally, I'm a state employee of the state of Arizona, and all of my emails can be subject to public records requests. So basically, anything that I write in an email is part of the public record. And he's has even gotten to the point where text messages between personal phones of staff members in our office can be considered part of the public record as well if they pertain to the work we're doing. So I'm really hyper alert and aware of my own sort of use of technology and communications with other people. So I had a really different perspective, I think, than the general population regarding my own personal privacy and and the role that that plays in my life. So I, I really enjoyed the film. I think it's probably not Oliver Stone's finest film, but I think it did have some interesting things to say, and I hope it spurs lots of conversations uh, particularly in this election year. That's super interesting, and, and I'm glad you bring up the the piece about privacy and, and where it is for you, especially as uh, your work with, with the state. Because for me, I, I don't have that direct connection to it, it, and yet I still, when I say I don't believe in privacy, it's just because I believe it's dead. So the, the, the controversy that, uh, that Edward Snowden brought to light, it, in, for me, really felt like it was not really a controversy because I was already a believer that everything was being watched. Not in a paranoid way, just because it exists. That's the nature of the beast is how I look at it. So, um, so in this film, you know, with what Oliver Stone brought to the table, the reason why I say it feels more about the controversy and less about the, um, the current controversy as opposed to the news event is because uh, it's, people keep talking about that they were trying to make a hero out of out of Edward Snowden and I don't know that it it, it didn't change my opinion uh, of of the events at all it, I, it was biographical I felt like and dramatic in the way it was doing it as well but it didn't really necessarily do anything for me politically which which is really interesting that you bring that up as well Steve um, you, you mentioned that it was a that citizen four was a compliment to it do you think does that mean that you think um, one should be watched before the other? I, I haven't seen all of Citizen Four. I've seen you know pieces of it. And because the events of that film serve as the framing story for Snowden, I think anyone that has... Uh, I, th- I think seeing Oliver Stone's film is a good starting place. Uh, the documentary does start to delve into a lot more depth and detail. So I think if... Seeing Oliver Stone's film piques your interest and you, you want to learn a little bit more. I think the documentary allows you that deeper dive into Edward Snowden and the issues and the sort of the technical aspects of the programs that uh, he has uh, gathered the documentation about to, to release to the press. There's a lot more insight into the nature of those programs than are in Oliver Stone's film, which sort of is a much more surface level. So I would say if you enjoyed Snowden or it piqued your interest, the documentary Citizen Four is, is sort of your next step to to 
delve further into this issue. But but I also think, as a sort of caveat to that, Steve, I think you have a leg up if you've seen Citizen Four before you see Snowden, right? It feels it feels like it fills in more holes that are sort of glossed over by drama in the Stone film. Sure, um, and yeah. and so it's it's handy and and it's a good piece of work. I mean, Citizen Four is a solid piece of of documentarianism. Yeah, best documentary of 2013. I right. believe won the Oscar. Yeah. Well, and and I say it fully, not knowing, I haven't seen it, and and not knowing how I was impressed by the fact that you said it compliments it because it 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 may beg more attention for me in that the drama that Oliver put in this movie didn't really connect with me. Did in both of them? I think the accusation, both with the docu- documentary and with this film, is that they were making a hero out of out of Snowden. Did you guys feel like that was what was happening? Did you did you feel like he was a hero at the end of this? I I did not. Um and, and in fact, I felt like rather than seeing him as a hero, I felt like his effort was more to humanize him. You know, here is a person who is not just a mechanical techno plebe, but he is a a real sensitive and thoughtful person who cares very deeply, not just about the technology, but about the politics and about the humanity and about this country. And it's because he cares about this country that he made the decisions that he did. I don't feel like they made him a, a hero in in this effort. And they did. I, I feel like he did, in in some respects, make the government sort of the the boob. Um, but but I walked away feeling like uh, like Levitt's portrayal of Snowden was was fairly humane. Well, I agree with that. And I think if that's, did you find, because Snowden appears in the film, and I, and I want to talk about that in, in, in great detail, but did you feel that he was humanized by the end? Because I, the reason why I say that is because I feel like just Joe, Joseph Gordon-Levin, uh, was so much more uh, human in his portrayal of Snowden than what we saw from Snowden. Yeah, I was not crazy about having Snowden in the film. That bugged me a lot. I didn't know what to make of that transition. Of to to sort of I don't know, pull back the curtain to to say you know here's here's what we've dramatized here's the real person I'm not sure exactly what the the functionality of that was in this this narrative to to sort of merge the two uh, the fictional you know portrayal versus the real man yeah it it didn't bother me but I I don't know what purpose it served it it felt like so much like melodrama to me like it was it was a cheap shot we have this character we have this guy and we're going to use him in the film to get a cheap uh, a, a cheap rise out of an audience who is hopefully by then sympathetic and and that I felt was cheap filmmaking and to- and the purpose i think it really i mean what as a reveal when you're doing that spin, and all of a sudden you're like, "Oh yeah," and he's also the guy. I, I, there's really no purpose to doing that, especially when he doesn't do anything except for smile. Yeah, it's not. It's not a case of a a story where the focus, you know, the main character is somebody that people are not familiar with or that they wouldn't recognize in a photo. I, I could see perhaps if it was trying to connect this story that we're really engaging with to reveal, no, it is a real person and, and they are still alive and here's who they are. I think Snowden is, Edward Snowden is very much a public figure. His face has been in the media, you know, recently people are aware of of who he is. So I, I don't quite understand the connection to try to bridge that gap with here's the story, here's the man. If it was someone that was not in the public eye as much. I could I could see that to show, you know, this is based on a true person and, and here's who that person is. In a film narrative structure like this, it just did not 
give me anything additional. If we're going to concede that the purpose of the film was to humanize him, if that's what they wanted to accomplish, I would buy that up until they put him on screen. Yes. Because the, the portrayal, the purpose of the film, and great filmmakers do this. I mean, you think about, you know, I don't know why I'm going to The Aviator, but I'm thinking about The Aviator right now, and I'm thinking about how that's humanizing this this larger-than-life character in Howard Hughes that it, no one really understood the, the depth of it. So you portray him in this dramatic way, and you all of a sudden think of him in his personal way. They did, Joseph Gordon-Levitt did that with for me with this film, and as soon as they bring in Snowden, it... it, it it drops it because he's not an actor. He's not the, the reason why you make a dramatic portrayal is to show that he's not this flat person that you've been seeing for so long. And then he come in and you say, "Oh yes," and here here it is again. I don't know. I, I was I was really bought into the film, and I and I do have problems with it in some areas because of that heavy handedness that we talked about a little bit. But I was actually bought in to a lot of what was going on until we started ramping up to the end and this sort of preachy here we're going to throw this back at you so you really know what we're trying to do here that totally just dropped the ball for me thinking about it now just some of the things you've said i guess perhaps it is because edward snowden is a person and the interviews yep. that he's he's you know we've seen with him we don't see that that humanity in him and perhaps it is to bridge the gap between the the humanity we see in joseph gordon levitt's portrayal to try to you know, by association, say all those things that you really, the sympathy that you develop for this fictional portrayal of him, we want you to now apply to the real man because you you don't have that background. You, we've never seen those personal conflicts that he's gone through to now, because usually it's the interview, it's the, it's the guy, you know, people that I work with, you know, we talked, I was telling them about this and they said, well, you know, I, yeah, I get, I understand him, but then he, he starts talking and then he just, people aren't connecting with what he's trying to do. And I, maybe perhaps it's to bridge that with, if we start to understand the man as a person through the fictional portrayal, we can bring that to bear on the real man and perhaps to develop more sympathy for him as a person. Well, Steve, I, I feel like you're playing devil's advocate, and I'm not hearing a whole lot of conviction in your argument, but I will just ask. <laughs> Let's say all of that is true. Yes. Uh, then that presumes that at some point, Oliver Stone and team sat back and said, we don't feel confident that we have adequately built a portrayal of the man through Joseph Gordon-Levitt's uh, performance. And I I think that's not true. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt did did a fine job of doing that, and it is a sign of of a lack of confidence that uh, in that very point that they didn't do their job right in the portrayal of the character that they felt like I had, they had to hang their hat on the real guy. That's an interesting take on that. I I don't know that I would say that it's a lack of confidence. I think it's it's hubris in that they're saying that uh, that we have now done this and now you're going. Like I I actually kind of go with Steve a little bit in that they're they're trying to say apply it to the man. I just think it fails. I think it's a total misstep in the way that they tried to apply it. Here's an interesting little fact from the Fathom event. Joseph Gordon was talking about the premiere that had been just the day before in New York, and Edward Snowden's mother father, stepmother, and grandparents were in attendance. And Edward Stone's mother apparently came up to Joseph Gordon-Levitt and said to him, I see my son up there on the screen. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt said, you know, as an actor, you always want that affirmation from your director, from the critics, from the audience. He said, but there's no greater compliment than to play the role of someone who's actually alive and have a family member say to you, 
yes, I see him in your performance. Yeah, and that was actually in the Fathom event that for for me in particular, that was really impactful. And I think that says so much about how well he achieved Snowden on screen. If you throw away all everything else you think about the film, I saw Edward Snowden on screen. I don't know the guy, but I've seen a lot of him in the news, and I've, I've seen a number of interviews with him, and uh, this felt like a very authentic portrayal of the guy. Yeah, he did it. It was a great performance. So again, back to this side, this this bit of of confidence and lack of it, uh, and, and you know, versus hubris, I, it it felt like uh like a a fake out. Whatever you you think of of why they did it, whether it was Oliver Stone um, exercising his grandiosity as a filmmaker, uh, or or if he wasn't sure if it, if it would come across, it it was it was a bridge too far. And it sounds like we all felt that way, it, whether it be for different reasons or whatnot. In terms of the writing, did you guys find anything that stuck out? I felt like it. Um, again, I was bought in for so long. It felt like it was a little bit repetitive. Um, I felt like the quotables from the movie I heard maybe four or five times. Did you guys catch that at all? Did you feel like that? I walked in this knowing that we're going to have to condense things. We're going to have to, you know, synthesize so many events down into a singular piece that may be a little bit on the nose sometimes because we've got to capture multiple facets of something in a, in a singular moment. I went along with it. Uh, knowing that this isn't, you know, completely historically accurate, I wouldn't categorize it as a great film, but I think it it's competent and it. I enjoyed it. You know, compared to a lot of the other film board, you know, films we've had this year, this is one that I I didn't walk out of feeling angry or upset. <laughs> I I enjoyed it. Moved I'll probably rage. <laughs> None of that. I said, okay, yeah, no, I I enjoyed this. Is it something I'm going to revisit multiple times? No, I don't think so. But I I think that it really was, you know, to, to tell a story and to tell it well. And I, I think in that respect, you know, mission accomplished. Well, I do agree with that because I think that, you know, other than the choices, the choices they made were choices. I just didn't agree with the choices. And in, in, in general, outside of that, I thought the film was, I didn't find it was, I didn't find errors. I didn't think, find things that made me angry throughout. You know, I could see Kieran Fitzgerald. I could hear Kieran Fitzgerald's writing in this film. Uh, and, and I am one of those people that enjoyed The Homesman, uh, which was and and Fitzgerald hasn't written a lot, uh, right? It's the Homesman and Snowden and uh, a part of uh, a TV documentary POV and the Ballad of Esquiel Hernandez, a documentary in two thousand seven, and so um, not a whole lot uh, in Fitzgerald's uh, CV, and yet. I enjoyed the homesman and the language in the homesman and the structure of the homesman enough that I could I felt like I could feel it here. Anytime it started to come off the rails is when it felt particularly Oliver Stoney. And 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 that's that's when it just got heavy. It was the and and it struggled I think with moments that had to be compressed because of of time of of the overall arc of time in the film things that that in real life happened over a long period of time maybe multiple years in some cases they compressed into single events and th- the act of compression and the act of Oliver Stone dramatizing that compression came off as I've already said heavy-handed for me and th- those elements brought me out of the film structurally overall I think it was uh, like you said JJ it was it was strangely paced because I felt like it was it was paced okay I was interested in it like I moved I moved through the film with it until right around the kind of end of the second act beginning of the third act it just 
it got a little long in the tooth and I was I was ready. I was really ready to resolve this thing. I was ready to push the button, Janine, publish the stupid article. Yeah, that was they were hammering that for sure. And it, it that just where you get into the heavy-handed stuff, right? I mean, yeah. honestly, like that's that's Oliver Stone uh, it, it, we see it in the visuals, we see it in the script, we see it in in his choices. He really wants you to know the drama that he is infusing into the story uh both in uh, that's what long in the tooth means to me right he's he's hammering it at you to and it's that's where it's it, you start questioning at least yeah. for me that the third act that's probably the the key thing that you mentioned there the third act is where all of a sudden it felt like it was gone so i don't even remember the first shot last shot what do you guys what did you guys see there oh i made notes because i knew we'd be talking about it Thank, Thank goodness. I was I was <laughs> so the, very the confused fir- <laughs> when the movie started. I didn't know what I was looking at. So Well, we so thought the, f- the Fathom event was going to be at the beginning. Oh, no, no. Always at the end. Always see, at the end. You're like the veteran, too. It helps. Yes, I've, I've done several of these. So, uh, so first shot was uh, aerial helicopter shot coming over sort of jungle-ish mountains into Hong Kong to the hotel. Um, sort of establishing shot of the hotel, at, you know, that's first shot. So moving in. Last shot is Snowden, the actual real Edward Snowden, sort of in profile looking out the window. Staring longingly into the middle distance. Yes, exactly. Those are our that's our first shot, last shot. I don't think, you know, we already talked about the issues with having the actual Edward Snowden there. So I think we've already discussed sort of the the last shot yeah. first shot it's it's really just a standard i think sort of establishing shot so there was nothing thematically that we could connect uh these two shots together you know it's so interesting about that though because i and i think now i i recall steve it, it's leading to that hotel and then we go into the sequence around finding edward snowden and he's the guy with the with the rubik's cube yes and they're you know it's zachary quinto and it's um, um melissa leo and they're in the hotel sitting on a fountain waiting for him to show up now now that we've tracked over the city. And in that regard, it's interesting because I'm waiting for Joseph Gordon-Levitt and and I don't want to pile on the, you know, adding the real Edward Snowden, but I'm looking forward to Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the context shock of seeing, of comparing the first shot where we're looking for Gordon-Levitt to the last shot where we have the real Edward Snowden uh, ends up being a, a visual dissonance for me. Uh, so it, it's actually, for me, a sign that the first shot, last shot make a, a really terrible pairing, <laughs> not necessarily a cultural or thematic one. I'm actually glad you took notes on that, Steve, because I, it, for me, I agree. It's it's standard, and then it's the the big the the big flip at the end, and it doesn't well, it doesn't have that thematic thing that we're talking about. We've talked about Joseph Joseph Gordon Levin a, a lot, uh, and it sounds like all of us really liked him there. Uh, other people from the cast that you liked or didn't is that a leading question well yeah we'll we'll talk about my friend shailene well let's uh, let's start with (laughs) melissa leo and steve i'm actually interested in your thought on melissa leo as uh, you know her portrayal of the documentarian after seeing uh, citizen four i felt like she was a little soft yeah i i would agree with that yeah that's uh i mean it's an interesting challenge when you've got everything all those scenes in that hotel room are captured you know in that documentary so to then try to use that as the framing structure, I mean, is a bold choice. It made sense to me as a framing structure to give us a, a rationale for the the jumps in the flashbacks where we're going to be based on what they're discussing in the hotel room. But it's got to be tied to what, if you've seen Citizen Four, 
you're going to be bringing that knowledge to who these people are in the room with him, what, again, what they're actually like as real people. And I, I, I would agree. I, I think, uh, you know, they did try to, they brought up, you know, I think she said something about being detained, you know, at, ho- at, at airports like 37 times or something like that. So I think they were trying to establish that sort of she's, you know, been labeled as an outsider. She's a, a fringe element. She's been, you know, considered a threat to the United States, you know, security. They, you know, but there was nothing in that portrayal that that captured that, I know, that edginess or rawness to her. That's that's part of who she is. That's that was exactly my thought. That and and particularly, I felt like dramatically she was uh, being paired up as the the maternal sort of counter personality to Zachary Quinto uh, as Glenn Greenwald, who was supposed to be, you know he kept coming off as sort of the bull in the china shop uh, uh, and and a little soft around the edges, uh, if, if not just inexperienced. I think they portrayed him as sort of inexperienced and emotional. Um, uh, but Leo's character, I think, she ends up having. More more of this sort of um, coddling kind of maternal um, nature when we know that she is she's she's a seasoned journalist right I mean she's a seasoned professional in the field and and I don't think she really captured that and I I know that Melissa Leo is is a I I think she's it's a choice of the part um, that that didn't come across she has done some incredibly good work in her career and this just felt like it didn't really nail the context of the film and of her role in it for me. Oh yeah, there's the, Melissa Lee is capable of such great intensity and to have, you know, sort of relegated to, you know, as he's trying to leave the hotel at the end of like, oh well, if you're going to masquerade as sort of, you know, one of the media then here take my camera. You know, it is sort of that motherly nurturing like, oh here this will keep you safe. Yeah, and I think when you say relegated, I think that's a good word to use for her because I feel like her, her I, I I agree with the maternal aspect that you're talking about, Pete. And other than that, I felt like her character was very thin, uh, used as a as a tool uh, for the story more than you know to sort of link it to the documentary. And I, it, you think back, I, I know Melissa Leo's done fantastic stuff too. I, I look at this cast, and we've talked before about stunt casting. I don't necessarily think this is a stunt casting cast, but I do look at the names on this list and think that they're here potentially for their political reasons or their relationship to the story, to Oliver Stone, something like that, that brings them to want to be a part of this thing, uh, whether or not they're playing a a meaty role. Did you guys have that feeling at all? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You look at, you know, particularly the Nicolas Cage of taking, you know, such a a small role in a film, you know, it, it, it speaks to there's lots of people that want to be part of this project. I think because, you know, what does he what does Nicolas Cage bring to that role? IMDb is saying that he did it as a favor to Oliver Stone after uh, World Trade Center. They're familiar faces. Yeah, I, I, To me, the, the strongest performance, you've got Joe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt transforming himself in Edward Stone. And then you've got uh, Risa Fons, you know, British actor, you know, good American accent, uh, but really a different role than I think many people will see have seen him in before. Uh, because, you know, really playing the sort of seasoned CIA, you know, insider and coach and trainer of these students, uh, really, a, a, I don't recall seeing him in a role like that. But those are the two performances that stick with me out of that because there was there was yep. depth to those roles. Everyone else, I mean, even Tom Wilkinson was sort of playing Tom Wilkinson. 
Right. Jolie this, Richardson was playing Jolie Richardson. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I was just, I, I, you know, pile on. I, Zachary Quinto again, uh, who I have a great affinity for as an actor since, you know, Heroes. Uh, I really like this guy. And in this film, it just felt so much like Zachary Quinto. Yeah. Clearly, I haven't seen Glenn Greenwald enough, uh, certainly not as much as I've seen uh, Zachary Quinto on screen <laughs> and, you know, big and small. So, you know, maybe he really nailed uh, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, but mostly I just saw Zachary Quinto in a, in a you know, press tour. I love seeing the spit fly, though, when he did his rant. <laughs> he did I mean, do a good rant. You're right. Totally yes. jumped in there oh, yeah. when he's going at, uh, what is it, Janine? Janine, just print it, press the button, Janine. I, I mean, he uh, he sold it. And, and that was, uh, you know, and I'm a big fan, too. So I yeah. probably easily can be swayed by that. But I loved what he did there. We should talk about Shailene. I, I shouldn't say that I hugely dislike her, but I just, uh, in, in this film, she took me out of it. Pretty much any time she was she was going for it, um, she really felt like she was playing at the character more than um, at more than being the character. And you know, I think about why she's in the film. She, it was originally offered to uh, Margot Robbie, which interestingly enough, after you see the pictures that roll at the end, Margot Robbie looks a lot more like the original um, the original gal, which I think is interesting. But yeah, it, and I don't. I mean, Shailene's got her place in the world, and I think and I think it's great. I just didn't. Get, I didn't buy into her in this thing, and especially pairing her next to this huge transformation with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it reminded me that it was a film most of the time when I was watching her. I had trouble because I just didn't—I'm with you, first of all, JJ. She took me out of the film every time she was on screen. Part of that was because I didn't get a feeling that she was old enough uh, to to have— done it right or to have to been in this place and and now i know there are all sorts of relationships in the world and and a 10-year difference in age uh is is not that big of a deal but but that's is that edward snowden's real age and shailene woodley's age they're about eight years apart and joseph gordon levitt about 10 years apart he's he's 10 years her senior and so you know i look at their relationship and i felt like she was too young to be acting as seasoned as she wanted to appear. And therefore, it just felt like acting. During their sex scene, my God, I thought, how does she know how to do that? I feel like he's coaching her through every way, just like, okay, now you need to sit up here. Okay, now you need to, can you, okay, roll over. Like, it just was not believable to me. And it it was, it it did a great disservice, this sort of miscast to to the film, I think. Yeah, and to say that, uh, yeah, their chemistry didn't work because of that dynamic. There was none of it. No, yeah. I'm I'm right there with you guys. I think the the scene when they're in in Washington D.C., uh, you know, as they're walking through, and there's the protesters. You know, she comes across as sort of the idealistic young college student, and he's the older, more sort of experienced life experience. And it just, I couldn't bridge that gap because I felt like she was playing the just much younger. And I I don't know enough about the actual couple to know that the differences in their ages is this accurate is there really a 10-year difference but it did bother me because it seemed like such a gap between the two yeah. of them in terms of their their life experience uh that just I don't know if that's she can't if it's that Shailene Woodley is been cast in so many you know younger roles that it's difficult to see her as the older more mature woman uh if that's what the audience is bringing in terms of our preconceptions if it's what she's bringing to the role and not having stretched 
to to play those older roles that she just doesn't have developed that skill yet if she's capable of that i don't know but i I, i'm right there with you guys they just did not click yeah and that the thing the interesting thing that i like about that dc scene is that's that's oliver stone doing a meet cute right (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i I, I did like i I like the use of the photography though yeah of you know she's a photographer so she's taking her pictures we're seeing those and you know in the back of my mind i'm thinking are these you know modeled off of actual photographs that she's that of of you know Edward Stone that are part of you know Oliver Stone's research into this film that these were photos she took and they've you know recreated those moments you know it added something to that but yeah I even at the you know at the, at the end of the film when it says you know she she has moved to Russia to be with with Edward Snowden you know as he's in in exile there to know that's the real truth of that I just I had trouble re- connecting that to Shailene Woodley's portrayal because it was like she's you know that young 20 something that's you know moved in with her parents and is trying to get her life together i couldn't bridge that gap with the reality of you know a strong assertive woman who's now choosing you know exile in the soviet union in russia there to be with the man that she cares for i i just yeah, didn't she, see that in the in the portrayal yeah she didn't give us that bond uh, between them at all uh, and i think i'm i'm glad you bring up the the photography because i think that, that that served as a neat contrast to the privacy reveal that is the sort of basis of the film and they, they actually talked about that in the fathom event uh, a bit yeah. that the photos that that her photos were regularly around and that issue of her having suggestive photos on the internet is something that did pop up and was a source of paranoia for for Snowden, which I think is interesting as well. I do too. I really, I actually, uh, I thought that was a, a, in in terms of of capturing a real life um, relationship conflict uh, on film, I think this is is maybe about the best I've seen, that it is so literally the opposite end of the spectrum in this couple's relationship, that she is so wildly uh, um, extroverted and he is yeah. so wildly introverted. I thought it was great. I mean, that that part of their relationship, the way it was written and structured was awesome. It just wasn't quite that well portrayed. I did appreciate when they asked, you know, Edward Snowden about, you know, how does it feel to have, you know, some of your personal, you know, conflicts, those high stress moments portrayed on the screen. And his response was like, well, it's not always great to see yourself portrayed as like the world's worst boyfriend of having to choose (laughs) choosing your career over that uh, to see that out there. Uh, You know, I I thought, you know, it was interesting to, to, see him reflecting on that to, to step back and, you know, looking at the choices that he's made and, and being a little bit objective of saying, yeah, that's, yeah, I, I was not, I was not a great boyfriend at that time. <laughs> I know. Yes. My, my, and I don't want to go back to this, but my comment whenever I heard him speak is he should just not speak. I liked Joseph Gordon-Levitt so much in this role that I think it would be better for Edward Snowden if Snowden were actually Joseph Gordon-Levitt instead of him being himself. <laughs> Oh, he does. He does. See, he doesn't bother me that much. And I, well, I'm I, not saying he bothers me. I just think if if the point is to humanize him, whenever he speaks and in the way that he speaks, he actually puts himself sort of further from uh, compassion. I, I, I don't know. It, for me, I, I I wanted in this film, I wanted to feel more for him. And as soon as he started, uh, you know doing his thing in the movie and then actually listening to him in the q and I'm like, I'm reminded of the political controversy that's there because people if people can't connect with him in his personality. That's why the film, you know, that's yeah. for me why the film exists. I think the film establishes, I mean, he's a guy who lives in his head. 
I mean, from when he first goes into his first class where they've got a, they've got a specific task and it typically takes, you know, four to five hours and he finishes it in 40 minutes, you know, because he's thinking outside the box. I mean, it establishes he's truly intellectual. And I think we see that in the Fathom event, in the Q&A, he is somebody that really lives in his head and his thoughts. And I, But what I, I appreciate sort of the balance again, from the Fathom event of, of hearing him articulate and being able to justify and explain his decisions with the humanity that we see in the portrayal. And to me, it's it's that balance between the two because I there's so many people that I think don't understand him. And this is another way to have access to him, to allow him to explain things. I, I've, so many people that I talked to you know, prior to seeing this movie said, yeah, well, I, I understand, you know, there's these issues with privacy, but you know, if you don't have anything to hide, there's nothing to be afraid of. And he addressed that point in the Q and a, and I thought quite convincingly, you know, came back to it several times to say, well, that concept that, that originated in the, with, you know, Joseph Goebbels in the Nazi party, not to make comparisons to any current political administration, but you know, how dangerous is that? And then to come back to actually say, you know, to to give up that right to your privacy because you have nothing to hide is the qu- equivalent of giving up your right to free speech because you have nothing to say. And then to then, you know, to then extend that to think, well, then if you give up that right at the time you do have something you want to say, you no longer have that right. So at what point do you fear, you know, maybe there is some point in your life where you may have something to hide. And he addressed that as well to say, that private that private realm is where we have the opportunity to try things and make mistakes without fear of it being part of the public arena of to try things out to to experiment with who we are what we're doing and to have that in a private realm and not part of the public those were things i had not, in a lot of interviews that i'd seen with him i hadn't seen him address it in exactly that way before and i i really appreciated that thoughtfulness that he put into it to, to give it context and real life application for people. Because I think so many times in the past, he's been really big picture of this is about, you know, privacy. The government is doing these things that they shouldn't do and people need to be aware of this. And I thought this Q and a really gave him the opportunity to bring it down to, to really ground it in some practical applications for people that I had not seen him do before. And I don't know if it's because he's had, more time to think about how to communicate his message, what he stands for. You know, now that, you know, time has passed, he's had a lot of time to think about and communicate or think about how he wants to communicate what, why this issue is such an important issue because it was more about the whistleblower of the government's doing bad things, you know, and I want to tell you about that. Well, everybody knows there's a lot of shady things. There's a lot of things that we're probably we're completely unaware of, but we we look the other way because we know sort of the ends justifies the means. You know, we're safe and we're willing to look the other way to know that there's corruption, there's bribery, there's, you know, money makes you know everything happen, whether at the federal level or the state level, or even your local level, you know, it's always about money, which brings me back to one of my favorite mammoth quotes. 
from heist. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting you say that. And in so many respects, I mean, I, Snowden is a story, and I don't just mean the movie, but Snowden the story is is sort of a work in progress of the answer to this question: is privacy uh, is the story of our privacy irredeemably lost? And you know, I mean, JJ said it already. I, I believe privacy is dead. Well, does it have to be? That's the that's the operating condition of Snowden is that it doesn't have to be irredeemably lost, that there is hope, but we have to act accordingly and we have to, to, to you know, at least be open about what we are losing when we, when we say we're ready to lose it. Oh yeah. I, I, as I said, I, I, this, these are things I deal with on a daily basis, whether it's the choice to send an email to a supervisor, which I know could then become part of a records request regarding whatever issue we're dealing with? Or do I walk you know, down the hall to have a face-to-face conversation, which then becomes private? You can't, that's not a public record. We had a conversation. Right. I shared an opinion. We discussed a decision. If I put that in an email, that now becomes public. It's not private. And so there are many times where I have to make a, a decision of, do I put this in an email or do I walk down the hall? Because I need to sort of evaluate what I'm going to say and, and what role that may play in terms of, do I need this documented? Do I need to back this up? Or is this something that can be an informal conversation? And I'm very aware of, of how to balance those two things. It's something I have to do on a daily basis. Most people don't. Well, and that's what I was going to say, Steve. I mean, it sounds like just because of the worldview you operate in, that you operate at a level that is more sophisticated even than the story this picture tried to portray. Yeah. And I, as I said, I'm sort of hyper attuned to this in that area of privacy. But also, I think, you know, in terms of Snowden as a whistleblower, I think I may be a little bit more sympathetic to him because I see a lot of sort of the behind the curtain mechanisms of how things operate in my state to know that, well, these things are going on and that, yeah, that's that's happening because this person wants it to happen and there's money at stake and they have something to gain from that. And it's not about what's best for the state of Arizona or the, the kids in Arizona, but it may be solely driven by one person's you know position and their desire to keep that position or the money that allows them to keep that position. Um, you can become very bitter and disillusioned by that. And that, those are sort of the things that I sort of connect with and identify with Snowden being a very idealistic person of saying, this is why I'm doing this and confronted with the reality of it's about money. Yeah. Money, money, politics, and power, right? And I mean, we're talking about privacy. Privacy is the sort of main thing that we're floating with this. But the other thing is accountability. And I think that what people, you know, that debate is what you're talking about, Steve, is that you are accountable to the things that you put in 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 that electronic message. Whereas, you know, people think of it as privacy, but really it's also this measure of, uh, of ac- accountability. I really like the comment that you said that he would talked about from the Fathom event, um, that, that talks about the trying things and being able to try things and, and, and potentially fail, uh, you know, and do it in a sense of a, a private place where you might not be accountable for that failure, whether or not it's criminal, whether or not it's, you know, something that you have to hide, which I think a lot of people jump to with him in this. I think it's more of a, a of a, of a chance to to have that co- that face to face conversation like you're talking about to get the the results that you need or that you want or even just some information uh, without having some sort of measure of accountability towards a, a simple you know mis- mistaken word or mistaken context. I think that's valuable to talk about as well. Talking about the production, we've talked about heavy handedness. I don't think we can avoid talking about the big TV. Oh dear. 
<laughs> was our overlord. <laughs> That's a that was a haunting, horrific uh, portrayal of uh, of what is to come of all of us when our walls suddenly turn into. Uh, screens and Grand Dictator speaks down upon us. What hath we wrought? That can't be real, right? That can't be really what happened. I have a hard time imagining that that was not an Oliver Stone creation. And I should say, while I know these kinds of screens exist, I just have a hard time imagining it wasn't dramatized. What would be the purpose of that size? Oh, I guess maybe if you were showing like a boardroom. Yeah, I mean, this in is some a, other setting that the channel still exists, but it's yes. just not always used for the uh, the one guy's desk. To to take a, a like a, a computer, you know, webcam to you know just magnify that. I mean, those that's that kind of projection. That's designed to create the infinite boardroom, right? So that right. you're at one table and this screen is over on the other table. They have these right. talking rooms. You can right. you can put these. In your business that they're all over the place it's a very real thing but to have this one-on-one relationship i mean this is one of the things they talked about in the interview at the end that there were elements in this that were dramatized the keystone element of the escape of getting the data out of the tunnel the cia dark tunnel underground of computers was in the film done by putting a SIM card in or a micro SD card in under the uh, the flap of a square on a Rubik's cube, and that was unconfirmed. We shall say uh, by Snowden, but that was that was dramatized. We are left to believe by the end of the film. Well, so he, that's he one of those hinted, elements. He hinted at that to say he gave you know lots of people Rubik's cubes as sort of a a gift or something. So there were yeah. lots of Rubik's cubes floating around. So no, he I wasn't. I thought that was very clever. Yeah. No, very, yeah. very clever to to hint that it's highly likely, but he's not going to confirm it. But it, it did, I feel, justify sort of the the role of introducing the Rubik's Rubik's cube. Uh, it was, I thought, it was dramatically in the film. You know, realistically, yes, as a as a programmer, as you know. Somebody that's, you know, analytical makes sense that you would have that fascination. To connect it back to Nicolas Cage's character, I thought was an interesting way structurally to sort of connect those two characters as sort of the man that had been there, you know, and had things taken away from him that had sort of been, I guess, beaten down by the system. You know, they have that sort of shared moment with the Rubik's Cube. He solved the one, moves on to the next one, to sh- and then to have... When Snowden, you know, goes public to have Nicolas Cage sort of there cheering, saying, yes, he did it. <laughs> he, needed, I, I, he, he needed a Rudy moment. He, yes, he did. <laughs> and I thought that, at least structurally for the film, it made sense for the Rubik's Cube um, in a way that to introduce it, to connect thematically through. So I didn't need to know whether that was real or not, because for me, I thought it worked as a device within the film and had been integrated sufficiently for the story. Now, there were some things I actually really did like about just the 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 way the thing was shot that I thought was was quite lovely and and it opens I think the opening montage leading into the the eyeball uh, I thought was really um striking, visually striking and um and just brought me right into the to the film very very quickly. Um I I think that um it it was a, a bit of a roller coaster for me that I at some points I was super interested in it and I was really tracking visually and at points I found myself a little bit bored um, and and I'm not sure what that's about 
the cinematography was done by Anthony Dodd Mantle, which is a name that I hadn't thought much about, but uh, he's done quite a few films that I adore, not the least of which Slumdog Millionaire and, of course, 28 Days Later. I'm a, a fan, clearly, of his work, and so it surprised me a little bit that visually I would be so interested up front and, and kind of lose interest until the end of the film. And you have to say, even though the, the Snowden, the fact that the real Snowden was in the film is something that we may not agree on uh, or, or agree with <laughs> Stone's choices there. You have to agree he was beautifully shot. Yeah, he had a halo. Right? He w- it was <laughs> yeah. really lovely on yes. screen. And you you do also know that Anthony Dodd-Mantle also shot uh, Rush, right? Well, it's a different <laughs> Rush, all right? I see what you're doing there. <laughs> I'm just saying. One just does saying. not put Chris Hemsworth in the corner. <laughs> I, I thought that Joseph Gordon-Levitt looked exactly like uh, Snowden, and we talked about his portrayal of it, but in terms of what they made him look like, I think they did the right things to make him look like him, too. Did you guys feel that way? And I, I know there had been a lot of criticism, I think, when the first trailer came out of, like, what's going on with his voice? Uh, why does he sound that way? It's to, to sort of approximate, you know, Edward Snowden's voice, and to me, those things don't bother me. You know, it's that suspension of disbelief. Here's this character he's playing. You know, I mean, we have British actors doing American accents all the time. And, you know, having seen, you know, as I said, segments of Citizen Ford, I, I felt that, yeah, it was enough where I didn't get distracted by, oh, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Coming back to all the actors again of the difference between the performances of those that felt like characters versus those that felt like an actor sort of walking through the steps and we could see them showing through the performance, I I didn't see Joseph Gordon-Levitt when I saw this film. I saw, I guess, a performance of Edward Snowden. And that's awesome. Yeah. So it yeah. was Edward Snowden with Shailene Woodley. Yes, unfortunately, it was. This was a film that there wasn't a lot that stood out for me. Again, I, I felt like... You know, if we talk about cinematography, yeah, it was. It was. There were things that were that were done well. Nothing that that wowed me um, about the film. I think it's something that I would, you know, recommend. But there's, I I don't see this, you know, generating a lot of Oscars for lots of other things. I it just seems like it was well done, but nothing worth, I guess, that appraisal of this is this is top notch this is top tier work it's it's done well and i guess you know that's about all i can say what you know you know cinematography you know hair and makeup those things it's like yeah it's done well it didn't call attention to itself but it didn't stand out to make a emotional impact on me this was not a film where i felt overly emotionally manipulated buy it well that's really interesting that you bring that up because at the beginning i felt that way too like that early uh music cue when they were doing the the test when they had all of the the sort of uh it was like an edm sort of thing at the beginning where it was a perfect music cue it felt like it was really slick really well done uh and then uh, when we get to the end of the film and i mentioned this to peter too that the song the peter gabriel song at the end was the most on the nose thing i uh, had ever heard lyric literally the lyrics I, I went I and I I think I have these uh, from online they're talking about how uh, an American hero or a traitor that des- deserves to die you gave up everything to bring down the veil uh, it, you let the whole world, wide world see it's literally a song written for Edward Snowden and it and it took that thing of where all that sort of well done 
sort of okay, not Oscar worthy, but powerful stuff, the emotional stuff that I felt at the beginning, all of a sudden became trite and like deliberate by the end. And the music is an expression of that for me. I don't know. Um, that Peter Gabriel song is wow. It was over the top. That final, the final barrage of of you know of of ha, 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 information flow, information flow. Let it go. Set it free. Let it go. Set it free. Over and now over you've again. let that whistle blow. Yes, I mean, yeah. I, it was it was too much. And you know this gets to this whole bit. You know I I opened my comments with this that that this was a guy who was just who wanted to, to deeply understand these things. He is naturally cynical of the establishment, and he is strikes me as deeply afraid of technology in itself. And this song captures what I see as Oliver Stone uh, you know <laughs> his message in this in this film and it was it was just too much hand-holding down his worldview it didn't give any room for the audience to have an opinion you know and that's it's an interesting contrast because you know as you saw if you stuck around in the fathom event one of the audience questions, you know, they were taking questions from Twitter and a question for Oliver Stone was, what What do you want people to take away from this film? You know, what message or meaning? And he basically said, look, I, I don't make movies like fast food. There's nothing that I want I'm, I want you to take away from this. I'm, I'm here to tell a story. Uh, there's not any specific message that he's trying to, that, that's what he's saying. But do you believe that, Steve? Do you believe that he didn't just wear his message right on his fancy beret? <laughs> and that's the thing that I have with so many of his films. Of, I mean, he may believe that and maybe he's oblivious to it, but it's so clear in so many of his films that there is an underlying driving you know, message that he's, that's why he's taken on this project. There's something important to say. Um, it's not just, oh, I've got this story to tell. It's it's an important story with a capital I and a capital S. And and those two things can coexist. That's my take on it, that you can have an important story and it can be one that lets the audience understand and make their own opinion and enjoy the ride. And in this case, it's like you can have two of the three. And that's fine. That's that's fine. And I'm not saying I hated the movie as a result of it. Like, it was fine. I'm saying it didn't, it's not going to stick with me. No, no, no I... I, I agree. I agree the film won't stick with people, but I do hope that they do walk away with a desire to look more into this. It, we went to, we all, all three of us went to the Wednesday thing. So it's really difficult to tell, you know, what kind of uh, attendance, what, what kind of people are going there. Yeah, but these were the diehards. Yeah. yeah. And it, our audience was quiet and I, I'd say about 15% full. It was, it felt small and, and not. And not well attended, but I will say that that Pete and I were the only people that actually walked out of the Fathom event, so that may be saying something. You know what, though, and I gotta say this: it wasn't about um, it wasn't about the people that were involved uh, in the film in the Fathom event. It wasn't about Snowden. It was about the the absolutely terrible interviewer. Uh, oh, and so we terrible. stayed for probably about 20 minutes. And what we saw in those questions just was uh, they were absolutely insipid that that anything that leads in this kind of a movie, if the Fathom event ends in a question where Joseph Gordon-Levitt says, but, you know, that's movie acting. Yeah, I'm walking out. That's not that is just <laughs> insipid. Yeah, and, like and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Lipton so is it was weird, terrible. Steve, I'm glad you stayed. 
Yeah. Because <laughs> we need that, uh, that, that information here. But what was your audience like? You know, it, it's tough. It's a Wednesday night. It's a, you know, it's show started at 730 and it, it went to like 1030, 1045. So it's, it's diehard Oliver Stone fans, I think, or, you know, it was definitely, you know, a, a smaller crowd. Of course, my theater was smaller because it was one of those. I saw it at an AMC theater that's got the reserved seating and the big fancy recliner. So you're already have cut down on the number of seats in there tremendously. So I, I want to say there were maybe 20 people in the theater and, ev- and everybody stayed. And there there were a couple moments. I, I can't recall where it was in the film. There was actually a small cluster that applauded several times during the film, which I found interesting. Oh. I, I just didn't see that as something... This is that type of film. Uh, but it was, you know, it, it was a quiet group. You know, everybody, you know, stuck around. Uh, you know, there were technical issues. And I did see on Twitter that there were a lot of theaters that were having a lot of technical issues with the Fathom event, that there were delays. My theater had some audio issue, issues. There was like no audio for the first five, 10 seconds. The video feed dropped out for about 15, 20 seconds, somewhere near the last third of it. Um it's the first time I've ever had that issue at a Fathom event. So I've, I've been to, I want to say maybe three or four others that didn't have issues. So I, I don't know what it was about this particular event. It seems particularly ironic when you've got Edward Snowden on the screen talking, you know, about media and government and privacy, then to have the feed just sort of disappear for 20 seconds, sort of right. feeds and into not, conspiracy not issues. Form, yeah. <laughs> yes. It was an interesting mix, you know, young and old in the in the theater for this one but it's aside from a, a little bit of applause it wasn't like i think uh, a rousing experience for everybody i you know i don't know well i think for me i you know i our 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 fathom event was had some problems too they actually had to to forward the dvd or the 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 tivo style recording they had <laughs> was it, too? Um, oh, it yeah, was yeah. it was so weird but um but you know i guess for me i i was kind of hoping from this film that it would uh, like scare me a little bit I don't know um, that it would that it would make me feel a lot less safe or give me knowledge that I wasn't aware of in terms of the Snowden case through the dramatization. And unfortunately, it was more about Snowden and it was more about like that controversy that people are talking about. This sort of we're humanizing him where, you know, I think we've all agreed that they didn't they weren't necessarily trying to make him a hero. They were just trying to make him real. Uh, but I, I think that's what the movie was about. And unfortunately, I was hoping to, to get more into the story. And maybe that means I should go see Citizen Four because that's probably the the data that I'm looking for. To, to really give me a sense of where my own situation is. But uh, in, in general, I, I, I was happy with the film through most of it. I think that the choices that they made at the end took me out of it, made me feel a little less sympathetic and, and a little more angry that Edward Snowden was getting his SAG card uh, from the whole deal. <laughs> uh, but, it, but in general, I think the film is well-made. And, and I think if people are interested in the story, I think it makes sense for them to go and see it. Do you guys have any final thoughts, Steve? As we're talking about this and, and talking about, you know, back to the question of, is, is this film trying to make Snowden a hero? Um, you know, or what is it? What is it doing? It is trying to humanize him a little bit. It's really interesting to look at the other films that are out there right now, because you've got Sully, which I have not seen. Ah, and to Sully. Me, yeah. And to me, I've only seen the previews, but to me, it's like the exact. These are two compliments working in opposite directions. Where you've got, you know, Snowden trying to humanize somebody that people is perhaps misunderstood, whereas. What I see from the trailers of Sully is here's somebody that everybody knows is a hero and they're trying to like 
generate artificial conflict of like, oh, is he gonna have a drinking problem? How, you know, did he <laughs> need to? Did ridiculous. he do that? And it's just like, <laughs> why are you trying to like, you know, bring this guy down? It's like we've got yeah. okay, we've got this this you know. Snowden, who's not well, like trying to make him more likable. You're taking Sully, who uh, nobody <laughs> could think of. Why would you say anything bad about him? Well, let's make a movie. Well, we've got to have drama, so let's yeah. you know make these stakes. issues. Yeah, Give we've got to have stakes. stakes. I'm like, why? Why do that? It's you know, but right. which film is doing better? I mean, Sully's gonna you know, I think be the top film again this week. It's the one that everybody's going to see. But I to me, there's it. there's no story that I need to see there. Snowden is the story that everyone needs to see because you don't have, there's more substance there that I think people need to engage with. A man, you know, no doubt, Sully Sullenberg, you know, a great American hero, you know, what he did needs to be celebrated. The guy did his job. That's what everybody should be he doing. He saved everybody. He landed a plane in a river. Let it go. Let him retire with a cigar and some bourbon and be done with it. Right. Why do he, nothing in his actions have done anything to impact your life? Everything that Stone's talking about has, you know, huge, huge repercussions for your lives today, your kids' lives, and moving forward, what your role, you know, your what your rights will be in this country. I mean, it's a crucial, crucial discussion that needs to happen that's a really good point and i think yep. probably the most compelling point for anyone to go and see the movie uh, pete how about you final words i you know steve said it it's not a great film but it's an important story and we need to know more about it well then why don't we oh i was gonna say rank it but we're missing like our key people we, we're missing our title song and our engineer so um for, well let's rank it on flick we chart. will rank it i f- uh, i have faith that this film will be ranked. Very good. Uh, Pete, and- Pete, you can press the button, right? I can press the button. Andy okay, has good. given me the keys, foolishly, <laughs> foolishly given me the keys to Letterboxd and Flickchart. We shall wreak havoc. Well, now the NSA has it too, so... Can we fix go. the Hail Caesar factor? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Since Andy's not here? Andy's uh. not here. <laughs> All right, are you ready? Okay. Yes, let's rank. First, we're going to go with Snowden against The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, gosh. I don't think you guys are going to agree with me, but I'm going to say Dark Knight Rises. Oh, wow. no. I have so many so many issues with Dark Knight Rises. I, no, I, I will go Snowden easily. Yeah, I, I have to agree yeah. uh, with Steve on that one. I'm going to go I figured, I figured you would, yeah. All right, one hero to another, Snowden or Captain America Civil War? <laughs> Captain America Civil War. Yes, Civil War. And Civil War takes it. How about Snowden versus Captain America the Winter Soldier? Ha! Winter Soldier. Definitely Winter Soldier for me. Yes. In terms of taking on very similar issues. (laughs) Sure. Fictionally and non-fictionally. How about Snowden or side effects? Side effects. Uh, You know, we really had a lot of issues with side effects based on importance and what it's saying, I will pick Stone. I think they're both, they both have strong points. They both have some issues, but I think I will hold up the social importance of Snowden as the deciding factor for me. I That's exactly the argument I was going to make too, Steve. Snowden wins it for me. But how about this? Snowden or Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice? <laughs> <laughs> Snowden. Yes, Snowden. <laughs> Snowden it is. And how about, wow, uh, this is just one superhero uh, after another for old Ed Snowden. How about Snowden versus Avengers Age of Ultron? Uh, Ultron. 
You had so many issues with Eltron, too. I know. But I didn't hate the robot as much as others did. You had to weigh Shailene Woodney's performance versus <laughs> the robot, and that's you're going to pick robot over Shailene Woodley. I was actually choosing uh, Edward Snowden's robot versus Ultron, <laughs> and I was more happy with Ultron. <laughs> Edward uh, Snowden's robot. Yeah. That is exactly <laughs> it. It's the Snowden versus Ultron. <laughs> so what does that what what does that mean? What did you pick? I, I have picked a, Ultron. He Ultron, picked Ultron. Okay. Yeah, I think we'll go with Ultron. Those are yeah, it's yeah. Ultron it is for the win. That puts Snowden at number twenty. Oh, on that's the a good TNR place. film board. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's right after Age of Ultron, right before BVS Doge. Okay, sure. Uh, and uh, I, I that's that's all right. It puts it ahead of the Hobbit movies, ahead of the Finest Hours, ahead of Hail Caesar, there, and see. definitely ahead of the Born Legacy. Oh yes. Uh, so there you go. All right. How what does this do for your letterboxed rankings, gentlemen? Out of five stars, I'm a three. Um, because I, I think the quality of the film puts it above halfway for me, but I don't go okay. any further than that. See, I would put it at four. Oh wow, four! That is yeah. very generous. Yeah. Super solid. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm a solid two point five on this one, which puts us at at three point two for the average. Okay, rounding down, it's a nice uh, three star uh, film for our letterboxed. Very today. good. Very good. Right. Well done. I did it. I didn't screw it up, Andy. There were buttons to push, and you did it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, next month, next month we're going to move on to Jack Reacher, and uh, this or the, it, it's a sequel, right? You guys, you guys have seen the first one. Oh yeah. So oh yeah. I, I, yeah. I haven't seen the first one, so I'm super excited to go to my library and pick up the first one and get uh, set up for this. You guys liked it, right? Well, I did, but Steve has been such a buzzkill <laughs> about Jack Reacher. Oh, oh no, no, no! I enjoyed the film. I thought, you know, <laughs> interesting casting of the villain in the first film. My issue has to do with the novels, which we can get into <laughs> oh, next month. Okay. Yeah. Pete and I have both read the book, so we can bring that to bear in our discussion. But I but, believe uh, it's fair to say I have read more Jack Reacher novels than you have, right? Is this the only one? You've you've read you... more than I want to. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is let's just say this. This one, uh this is the eighteenth Jack Reacher property. No. Uh yeah, that that's what it is. So it's a sequel, but it's a sequel uh only in film. It it yeah. dives into the well of Jack Reacher properties. That's that's different than I had remembered you guys talking about it, and I will promise you both that I will not read any of the books before I see the movies. <laughs> yeah, so right. I will be a completely separate opinion we, in terms of that. We will hold you to it. <laughs> in terms of the short, uh, Steve and I, we, we have to get together and do one on Odd Thomas. That's right, Steve. Uh, when we're going to schedule that up, right? Yes, we are. Yeah, Another one up. of my very favorite literary characters. From uh, Dean Koontz, is that right? Yep. Very nice. And uh, on the Mothership Show, the next reel, Pete, what are you guys doing? Oh, dear. We're wrapping up our Seven Samurai Family series. This ah. week, we're hitting up with A Bug's Life, <laughs> and uh, that's gonna, we're very, very excited about that. And, of course, we're going to wrap it up with The Magnificent Seven, uh, Antoine Fuqua's take on The Magnificent Seven the week after. So that's going to wrap up The Seven Samurai Family. You should check out these movies. We just did Three Amigos, and it was a hoot. Hoot, I tell you. Yeah, I love that movie. 
Uh, this particular movie that we talked about today, like I mentioned before, it was far less scary than I thought, and I was far more ambivalent to it than I was thinking. Um, but like I said, I'm super excited to talk about Jack Reacher, at least uh, from one of you. <laughs> for what's going on. Um, I think uh, I think we did okay on this. I think the NSA won't uh, take us all out, and hopefully they'll return us our other two thugs next month. Do you think that's possible, guys? Hope they haven't been, been uh, what, what do they call it? Take it into a, uh, it's not redemption. I believe the term you are referring to is rendition. Yes. Oh, my Yes, gosh. I think they've been renditioned. Rendition. Oh. oh, that is so scary. I totally knew you were going to bring that voice back. That is Ultron's daughter. I'm just telling you. <laughs> you know I love you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Good night, Steve Sarmento or Ultron's daughter. This is Filmboard Member X. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Good night, Pete. Good night, Trojay. Every month you can find a new chat here on the film board. When the movie ends, our discussion begins. I am JJ, and thank you all so very much for listening. Till next. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 